Welcome to Abundant Life with Pastor Joe Ganahl. So several weeks ago, I preached about Bible translations, and we were talking about which Bible translations to have. Should you have a, a literal translation? Should you have a dynamic equivalence? Should you have a paraphrase? And there's a new translation that you probably haven't heard of yet that I was excited to talk to you about today. How's that? Okay, good. Here is the promotional material for that. It was written to keep pace with the times. Now stop right there for a second. How many times have you heard that about churches? You just need to keep pace with the times. Folks, our message never changes. The method in how we present that message may change. That's how we keep pace with the times. But when people say you need to keep pace with the times, what does that really mean? It means you need to change your message. You know, we'll never change the message of Jesus as long as I'm here. The message of Jesus will always be first and foremost. So what they mean by keep pace with the times is you need to change the message. You're going to add core socialist values, and we're going to remove passages that don't reflect communism. John chapter 8, verses 7 through 11. Jesus once said to the angry crowd who was trying to stone a woman who had sinned, He who is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. When his words came to their ears, they stopped moving forward. When everyone left, Jesus stoned the woman himself, saying, I am also a sinner. That's real. This is not a joke. This is in the Chinese Communist Party Bible. Do you see the danger of not knowing the word? That's going to be distributed to millions of people. Wow, the Communist Party finally got God. No, they didn't. They're taking him away from the people who will read that Bible. Would you want to follow a Jesus who stoned the woman himself and said, I am also a sinner? Absolutely not. Now, from a marketing standpoint, this is genius. It really is. From a, from a Communist Party marketing standpoint, they are bringing in the Word of God, right? They're bringing in the Bible. They're just not bringing in the Bible that we know. i got a feeling it's going to backfire. Because the word of God never returns void. But this is why it's so important. We know the Bible. Now we, I think, did a pretty decent job answering the question last week, is there a God? We looked at all kinds of evidence for that. We looked at the cosmological evidence. We looked at the teleological evidence. We looked at the ontological evidence. We looked at the moral evidence. And we said, yep. It's pretty easy to see that outside the Bible, there is evidence that a God exists. We didn't answer which God. We just said a God exists. So why is it important to know that there is a God? Well, foolishness or wisdom is bound up in the answer. 
foolishness or wisdom is bound up in the answer to that. Look at what the Bible says in Proverbs 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We looked at Romans 1 extensively last week. That these people knew God, but they suppressed the truth about God. They suppressed the truth. They chose, even though they saw God everywhere, they suppressed the truth about it. What, what happened? Their minds were dark and confused. They became utter fools, and it led to every kind of sin and wickedness. So for you and I and for others in our world, when we're saying there is no God, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. And we haven't proven that God from the Bible. We have proven that God from science. So you've got one side who says there is no God, and the only option for them is foolishness. But on the other side of that, which 99% of the people admit they're looking for, is we need wisdom. And in this era, in this age, and the things that you and I are dealing with today, we need wisdom. And that wisdom is only found in God. It's only found in God. Look at Colossians 2.3. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God is the only one who knows this way of wisdom. So is it important to know there is a God? Yes. Because if you're going to continue to admit that there's not, you're foolish. But when you begin to admit that there's a God and seek him, you're going to find wisdom beyond your own. And so the, the, the question is incredibly practical, and it applies to our everyday life, whether the decisions you make are going to be foolish decisions or whether the decisions that you make are going to be wise decisions. Now, throughout history, our, our best guess is that there's between eight to 12,000 gods who have been worshipped. Eight to 12,000. Again, we established last week that there is a God, but we didn't establish which one. Is, is it the, the God of the Hindus? Is it the God of the Muslims? Is it the God of the Buddhists? Is it the Judeo-Christian God that we would seek? You know, there's a... <laughs> I hope none of you have this on your car. <laughs> There's a bumper, that's, bumper sticker that says coexist. Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? That bumper sticker has a bunch of different symbols for a bunch of different world religions. And they want the world religions to coexist. Do you know that will never happen? It, it can't ever happen. And the reason it can't ever happen is because those religions contradict each other. One of those religions will say two plus two is zero. One of those religions that will say two plus two is two. One of those religions will say two plus two is four. One of those religions might say two plus two is whatever you want it to be. So they cannot coexist because they disagree and they contradict one another. It's like saying, well, is the hamster in the oven? No, the hamster's not in the oven. Well, is the hamster in the oven or not? It can't be both. Kind of a weird illustration, don't you think, Sam? <laughs> I'm just still freaked out about my mic. I, I've lost it up here. I feel you, feel you. Okay. I just want to make sure you understand that they can't coexist. They're not going to coexist. 
Again, if we go back to the Bible, in Deuteronomy, God says, there is no other God but me. There's no other God but me. So today, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to illustrate which God is it. If we have proven that there is a God, which one? Pray with me. Please pray with me. Pray for me. Thank you, Daddy. You are the God of laughter and the God of love, the God of life. We just thank you that we can gather here together today. We can enjoy one another's presence, but more importantly, we can enjoy your presence. Thank you that we don't have to beg. We don't even have to ask you to be with us because you have already promised that you are. And as your Holy Spirit is with us forever. So I just yield to the Holy Spirit today. I yield to his voice. I yield to his knowledge. I yield to his words that what may come out of my mouth may be the anointed word of God that would not just inform us, but would transform us today into the very image of Christ. And I ask these things in his name. Amen. Now, before we start, I got to tell you that I'm biased. I've got to tell you that I'm coming from the standpoint that the Bible is true and that, that the Bible points us to the real one true God. So you, you need to know that first. And what I, I would illustrate this better if I had two hands, but I've got some money up here. And got a $100 bill, got a $50 bill, I've got a million dollar bill. And so what we're going to come at today is I'm going to come at the real stuff. I'm going to come at the stuff that is proven to be true, and I'm not going to mess with the fake. When you're a bank teller and you're trying to figure out if money is real or not, you don't look at the fake stuff. You look at the real stuff. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the real stuff, and we're going to prove that the God of the universe is the God of our Bible. Uh, I think by knowing the real stuff, you'll be able to figure out what's fake. Now, as an illustration, my wife said, are you going to give this away as an illustration today? No, I'm not. <laughs> yes, I am. Sorry. I'm learning. <laughs> so the first thing we're going to talk about is the diversity that there is in the Bible. The diversity and the unity that there is in the Bible. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors, written over three different continents in three different languages over a period of 1,600 years. And the Bible has complete unity and harmony. Think about this message today. Think about if somehow we saved it for 1,600 years. And think about if you asked 40 people to write about what I'm going to speak about today. There's no way that they would all be in complete unity and harmony with what I've spoken. Because we hear different things and different things mean different things to each of us. And so one thing that I say today might not mean a lot to Gaylord, but it sure might mean a lot to Mark. And so we don't find any other book in history that has the unity that the Bible does. One of the other things that we see is they're completely honest about their mistakes and their sins and their failures. 
if there was going to be a biography written about me, if I, if I asked you to come in and, and write a biography about me, I might color it a little bit with the good stuff. I, I might avoid the things that made me look not quite so good. And the Bible does not do that. The Bible is very honest about everybody in there and their sins and their failures and their mistakes. And that is another reason why we see that it would be true because they're not afraid to shy away from those things. And so we see a completeness in the Bible of unity and harmony. Look at Psalm 33. The Lord spoke. He breathed the word and the heavens were created. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is literally the very breath of God. Have you ever heard the term Yahweh as the name of God? Watch this. Yahweh. Yahweh. It is the very breath. Yahweh. So when we talk about the Bible, it is the very breath of God, the very breath of God that brings life, the very breath of God that the Holy Spirit spoke to men, and men then wrote those words down on a piece of paper. No prophecy came about by the will of man. It wasn't, well, this sounds good. I'm going to put this down. No, it was the very Holy Spirit leading them, and out of that came the very breath of God. So we see a great diversity, we see a great unity in the Bible. The second thing that I'm going to talk to you about is the, the bibliographical or the historical aspect of the Bible. There's going to be a chart that will be up here. We kind of tried to, to repeat it in your notes. It looks much better up here. There is more evidence for the Bible to be true than any other ancient work of antiquity. Any other ancient work of antiquity. If you find people who are skeptics and they say, well, there's just no evidence that the Bible is true, you have to toss out everything else that we now look at as incredible, amazing literature from the past. Everything else. So to give you an idea, we've put just some of them up here. Plato wrote the dialogues approximately 350 BC. The earliest copy of that was 900 AD. 1,200 years later, after he wrote it, we have approximately 210 partial or full manuscript of that book by Plato. If you look at the Gallic Wars by Caesar, written in about 50 BC, the earliest known copy we have of that, again, is 900 AD. It's almost 1,000 years later, and we have a little over 250, again, partial or full manuscripts of the Gallic Wars by Caesar. The Iliad, anybody read the Iliad in school by Homer? Okay. If we look at that, written about 800 B.C., the earliest known copy is 600 A.D. The earliest full copy in your notes is 1300 A.D. So we have a partial copy from 600 A.D., 1400 years later, 
and there's about 1,700 manuscripts, again, full or partial available, of Homer's Iliad. Now, have you ever heard any professors or anybody say, well, those things aren't true? Those things aren't accurate. We don't have any evidence that that's exactly what was written. No, never. But you've heard that a lot, probably, about the Bible. So if we look at the Bible, specifically the New Testament, written between 40 and 90 A.D., but the earliest known copies of that are from 125 A.D., approximately 80 to 50 to 80 years later. Now, here's the deal about that. If I wrote something today, and I wrote something about my life, that I was a World Series champion pitcher with the Chicago Cubs, I won the Masters Golf Tournament, I won the long-range shooting title, I was 6'3", 185, blonde, blue eyes, six-pack, let's make it an eight-pack, eight-pack, <laughs> If I wrote those things today, 50 years from now, many of you would still be alive. And if that book came out, what would you do? You would say, that ain't true. I was there. None of that is true. So that's one of the key factors in when we see the manuscripts from the Bible. Those earliest manuscripts, if it wasn't true what was written in there, there would have been people who would have come forward and said, that's not true. And in actual reverse of that, we have many historians, remember this name in case you want to look later, Josephus. Josephus was a Roman historian. You can go look at the works of Josephus, and Josephus talks about the Bible. He talks about Jesus. He affirms that it's true. So the opportunity to have the earliest copy within the same lifetime of the people of when it was written is huge. Now, you've already seen it up there. How many copies of this do we have? Over 26,000. 26,000 partial or full copies of your New Testament. We have 5,800 in Greek. We have 10,000 in Latin. We have 9,300 in Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, and Armenian. So if we're looking at something, again, outside the Bible, and we take this bibliographical evidence and we compare it to other ancient works of literature which we accept as completely true. There is no question in our mind that everything you read in Homer's Iliad is exactly what Homer wrote, and yet we have a gap of almost 1,400 years until we have a copy. Otis, am I making sense? That's a, that's a line from yesterday's situational awareness training. Am I making sense to everybody else? So as we're trying to prove that this God of the universe is the God of the Bible, we've checked two boxes. And those boxes are pretty certain that we can look at this and say, wow, it's pointing that the God of the universe is the God of the Bible. Let's take scientific evidence. Again, kind of like we did last week. 
the Bible and true science are friends. Science is not against the Bible and the Bible is not against science. Okay? But what we find is before science discovers something, the Bible has already spoken. Let's talk about life and let's talk about blood. William Harvey discovered that life was maintained by blood in 1620. Yet, we read in Genesis 9-4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. In Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Science discovered that in 1620. The Bible talked about it thousands of years before. Let's take the earth. In 500 BC, the Greeks, Aristotle included, theorized that the earth was round and that the earth was floating in the nothingness of space. Now, we didn't have proof of that until 1948 when we finally had pictures. But it took us until 1948 to actually prove that. And in fact, up until the 1400s, it was accepted fact that the earth was flat. Up until the 1400s. In fact, today there is still a flat earth society. But up until the 1400s, the general feeling of the world was that it was flat. And until 1948, we could not prove that it wasn't. The Hindu earth is held up by an elephant and four turtles. Or you can go to the Bible and see in Job 26, he hangs the earth on nothing. And in Isaiah 40, God sits above the circle or the sphere of the earth. Written thousands of years before science discovered it. How about wind currents and ocean currents? A guy named Matthew Morey was studying his Bible. And he said, you know what? I need to see and discover that there are wind and ocean currents. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. And nobody had discovered that at that point. Maury discovered that around 1850. Maury's textbooks are still used in universities today because Maury mapped the wind and the ocean currents. In 1850, yet, the Bible says in Job 28, when God fixed the weight of the wind there was a current and a weight to that wind. And he said in Psalm 8, and Psalm 8.8 8 was the passage that Maury was studying when he had this God moment of, I need to figure this out. And Psalm 8.8 8 says, the fish in the sea and everything that swims in ocean currents. But it hadn't been discovered yet until 1850 with Matthew Maury, and yet the Bible spoke about it thousands of years before science discovered it. We doing good? Okay, let's look at one other thing scientifically. Let's look at the water cycle or the hydrological cycle. Again, early philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, even da Vinci, thought that water was stored underground and then released. 
1870, excuse me, 1674, Pierre Perrault discovered the hydrological cycle in 1674, yet the Bible tells us thousands of years in front of that in Job 36, clouds pour down their moisture and showers fall. Isaiah 55 says rain come down from heaven and waters the earth and the seeds grow. So we have scientific evidence from outside the Bible that points to the Bible, or actually what we should say is scientific evidence inside the Bible that points to science. Look at what Josh McDowell writes. Where the Bible speaks on science, it does so with simple, correct terms, not absurdity. The earth is not held up by a turtle and four elephants. So where the Bible speaks on science, it speaks with simplicity. That should not be expected from men during pre-scientific times. There's no way that the writers of the Bible could have known these things unless it was the very breath of God. Archaeological findings have verified and in no case have erased the truth of the Bible. There are three things that we can look at archaeologically. Now, there's hundreds of things that you can look at archaeologically. I've actually put a, a website in your notes, answersingenesis.org. And if you go to answersingenesis.org, <laughs> you can look at literally hundreds of examples of archaeological finds that follow the absolute truth of the Word of God. In fact, many people who are doing archaeological digs in the Middle East, their Bible is right beside them. Because they know that what the Bible says is true. And they know that this city that we didn't previously know about is supposed to be right here. Look at these three things. Skeptics dismiss the Hittites. They said the Hittites were a made-up race. They never existed, and then they found their entire city. They said the Assyrian king Sargon, not Sauron for you Lord of the Rings fans, but Sargon never existed. And then you know what happened? They found his entire palace. They said that Belshazzar was thought to be imaginary only to find items with his name on them. And I've listed some scriptures in there that point to those exact same things. So when we talk about archaeological evidence, we have yet to find a site of archaeology that disagrees with what the Word of God has said. So we're checking off boxes rapidly, aren't we? We're checking off boxes rapidly that prove that the God of the universe is the God of the Bible. Let me give you my favorite. It's called Fulfilled Prophecy. There are approximately 270 prophecies about the Messiah. And, and they were prophesied, in many cases, thousands of years before his birth. The first one we find is in Genesis 3, where, where it talks about how Jesus is going to come in and he's going to put his foot on the serpent and destroy the serpent. It's a prophecy of Jesus. So we see it back almost to the very beginning of the Bible. Jesus could have had no impact on those prophecies about himself if he wasn't God. But these prophecies have been fulfilled. 270 approximately, Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. 
Now, they were written about him before he was born. Now, he fulfilled every single one of the 270 prophecies. 60 of those prophecies are very, very, very specific. If you took eight of those prophecies and you said for one man to fulfill eight of these particular prophecies in his lifetime, the odds of that would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, to give you an example, that would be like taking silver dollars. This is one in 10 to the 17th power. Be like taking silver dollars and filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. And as you fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, you mark one of those silver dollars with an X and you mix it in amongst all of the other silver dollars. And then I blindfold Sam and I release him into the state of Texas and I say, find the silver dollar with the X on it. And if Sam was able to find the silver dollar with the X on it in the very first try, that would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's the odds of Jesus fulfilling, no wait, just eight of those prophecies. Now, if Jesus fulfilled 48 of those very specific prophecies, that is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, that would be like going back to Texas and covering Texas in electrons two feet deep, marking one of those electrons with an X, blindfolding Sam, letting him loose in the state of Texas, and he would pick out the one electron that was marked out of all of the other electrons on the very first time. That's 1 in 10 to the 257th power. Now, just to give you an idea, if you were to count an inch of electrons and you were to count an inch of electrons at one electron a second, it would take you 19 million years to count an inch of electrons. But stop. We're not talking about an inch of electrons. We're talking about a cubic inch of electrons. So in order for you to count a cubic inch of electrons at one per second, it would take 19 million years times 19 million years times 19 million years. So the odds of one man fulfilling just 48 of the 270 prophecies are outside of what we can even fathom. And so we've got another box here that points us to the fact that the God of the universe is probably the God of the Bible. Look at Isaiah 46. Only I can tell the future before it happens. Only I can tell the future before it happens. So we got a lot of boxes that we've been checking off the last couple of weeks. And those boxes point us to a God, and those boxes point us that the God that it's pointing it to is the God of the Bible. And she might say, well, how do you know, Pastor, when you're reading the Bible, how do you know if this particular passage is literal? How do you know if this passage is symbolic? Because that's important to know. Well, it's not 100% accurate, but generally your parables are symbolic. And generally when we're talking about some specific things like a certain man, that's a literal passage, generally. One of the things that you can determine if it's a literal passage or if it's a symbolic passage is by context. 
look back at the context of what's going on and see in the middle of this context, does this thing literal or is this thing symbolic? Let me give you a couple of passages. First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye. Not seeing anybody with that issue. Maybe it's because I've got a beam of wood in my eye. He's not talking about a literal beam of wood being in your eye. It's a symbolic passage, and what he is saying is, you know what? Be careful about judging someone else until you look at yourself first. And so we have a symbolic passage. When he talks about, hey, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye, I don't think I see a whole lot of one-legged, one-armed, one-eyed people here. So again, it's a symbolic passage that you can understand when you look at the context. A literal passage, let's look at Luke. There was a paralyzed man. So we see something very specific here. And this paralyzed man, Jesus says, get up and walk, and he got up. So that's a literal passage of Scripture. Now, in all of it, the principle for you and I is always literal. The principle of that passage is always literal. God wants us to learn something from that passage. He wants us to be transformed by that passage. So whether the passage is symbolic, whether the passage is literal, please understand God wants you to see something in that passage that would transform you. He wants you to see Jesus in that passage. So we sometimes get too caught up in whether, is this really a literal passage of Scripture? Is this really a symbolic passage of Scripture? Again, context is your friend. And context will help you with that, but understand that all of it is literal. God wants to use this to transform you. So I think in two weeks, we've done a pretty good job of indicating that there is a God. And there is a God of a universe, and we prove that outside of the word. And I think that that God of the universe we've looked at today and we've said, you know what? Again, outside of the word with the word because we've used scriptures, there's proof that the God of the universe is the God of the Bible. What does that mean for us? It means there's a way of doing things and there's a way of not doing things. And the way of doing things that brings life is the way of doing things that the God of the Bible has written down for us. And so if you're going to experience life on this earth, if you're going to experience direction, if you're going to find wisdom, if you're going to find peace, then the God of this Bible has given us an idea of where to find it, and it's in his word. And that's what makes this so important. Look at Deuteronomy 32. Let my words fall like rain on tender grass, like gentle showers. I wanted to illustrate this, and I didn't really know how. If you have a, just a little baby seed inside a plant, inside a, a planter, and you don't take a gallon of water and dump the thing on the, on the, the little baby seed. It'll drown it. It'll kill it. So what you generally do is you take one of those cans that has the, the shower thing on it and you gently water that seed. 
don't get caught up and you don't know it all yet. Because if God dumped all of his information and all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge on us all at once, we couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle it. So the word of God is not going to throw all of this on you at once. The word of God is like gentle rain. And it comes down gently on those seeds that have been planted in your heart. So it doesn't damage the plant. But it strengthens the plant. So no matter where you are today, no matter how much knowledge you think you have or you don't have, God is still gently watering the seeds that are being spoken in the seeds of the word of God. And he's gently watering in that because he wants you to establish roots in your heart. And when you begin to establish roots in your heart and the storm comes, the stronger those roots are, the stronger you'll be. But again, don't get caught up in I don't know this or I don't know that. It's coming. And the word is just a gentle rain that helps those seeds grow. And then if you look at Psalm 119, 130, going inside the word of God, he just tells us that the entirety of your word is truth. So everything that you see in the word of God is truth. It can be a foundation for your life. And when the word is your foundation, and the winds come, and the rains fall, and the waters rise, your foundation will be secure. But that can only come through the word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You have given us this firm foundation, and the entirety of your word is truth. Thank you that we can see that today. Thank you that we can trust that there is a God, and the God of the universe is the God of the Bible. We can trust that the word of God is true. We can trust that it has answers to every single situation we face. We just praise you for that. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for how much you love us. And we thank you for the strength and the life and the peace and the rescue and the joy that comes from your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Joe Ganahl. For more information on resources and how you can partner and support this ministry, log on to our website at albrookings.org.